Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Our returning guest on the show today is Mark Dankberg, the co-founder and executive chairman of Viasat. Viasat is a $3.1 billion market cap company that provides broadband and communication products and services worldwide. Viasat started off as a defense-oriented company, but has since layered on consumer and business-facing offerings by developing the world's leading high-throughput geostationary satellites. Subsequent to our first interview with Mark, Viasat announced its intent to merge with Imarsat a UK-based company that provides mobile satellite communication services on land, at sea, and in the air worldwide. Without question, the size and the timing of the deal were a surprise to many of the people in the industry, especially because Viasat was in the middle of preparing to launch three new satellites over a short period of time. Given all of that, I was very curious to hear from Mark about why Viasat decided to acquire Imarsat versus other potential targets, why Viasat is a right owner of Imarsat versus other potential buyers, why do the deal now versus waiting until the three new satellites had been launched, how Imarsat fits into Viasat's hybrid network philosophy, and how Viasat plans to integrate Imarsat's employees culturally. Before we begin, just a few disclosures to note. First, Cove Street owns Viasat shares. Second, Cove Street has done a number of podcasts and interviews specifically on our position in Viasat. And without any further ado, here's my second conversation with Viasat co-founder and executive chairman, Mark Dankberg. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. I would argue that the current moment, which includes the upcoming launch of three Viasat 3 satellites and the impending merger with Imarsat, is one of the most pivotal junctures in recent memory. So maybe let's start off with a broad overview of Imarsat that includes its assets, strengths, and even recent history. Okay, sure. I can give you a, a kind of a historical overview of Inmarsat. It was formed uh, roughly around 40 years ago as a kind of a public interest entity that was an arm of the United Nations in order to provide satellite coverage at sea. There was really at that time no significant business case for a commercial company to do that. So the, so the purpose of Inmarsat was to provide primarily safety at sea for airplanes and ships. And over time, they evolved to to serve other functions as well. The company uh, was essentially a 
an intergovernmental monopoly for around 20 or so years. And then probably around, I think it was around 15, 17 years ago, was taken private because there was, there was becoming availability of other services that could uh, compete with Inmarsat. The, the other really big thing about Inmarsat was that it was formed uh, using what's called the L-band spectrum in the range of about one and a half gigahertz. So that would be considered low band in the terrestrial wireless space. So it was primarily good for voice communications and very low speed data, which was also kind of consistent with its mission. So you could do voice connectivity over oceans, which would be the equivalent of the radio systems that people might have otherwise over land or messaging. Around, while they're, while they're a public company, I mean, yeah, after they had gone public, the company realized that more and more there was demand for uh, broadband communications and that people were starting to do that through uh, what, what were called VSAT systems or the same type of satellite data systems that were used on the land could be used at sea with tracking antennas. So this was a, an important point in Inmarsat's history and they expanded their services to broadband by launching a set of KA band satellites called Global Express. Uh, and that, that was, a, that was a, uh, a big transition for them to kind of acknowledge that L-band, even, even though they had services that were called broadband, really wasn't the best platform for, for broadband. Uh, while L-band had other advantages to be able to provide high-speed data, they launched a K-band system as well. Again, primarily at sea, but also with coverage over the land as they had some over L-band as well. And then kind of the main uh, thing that changed about two years ago was the company was privatized, uh, taken private by a, a group of private equity companies. So that's kind of an overview you know, to any more depth that you'd like on any of those parts. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd like to dig into, you know, why MRSAT's such a good partner for Biosat. So, you know, I have a friend in venture capital who uses this framework he calls why you why us and why now, whenever he's assessing a potential investment. So I'm gonna steal that framework and pose some questions to you. So let's start off with why make an offer for Immersat versus A, doing nothing and just waiting for your own satellites to launch or B, participating in another aspect of satellite provider consolidation. Okay, so, we, uh, so we're constantly evaluating, evaluating kind of the strategic framework uh, that, that we work within. And we're mostly trying to figure out you know, how can we do well by our shareholders. And, and often that involves how can we provide better, more competitive services to our customers. And uh, you know, what, I, what I would say is we, you know, we've been in the mobility business almost ever since we started. Actually, our very first business over about 35 years ago was narrowband satellite communications for the U.S. government, primarily the Navy and uh, the Air Force, and, and and also some Army as well. And so we had a we had a good understanding of mobility and the the think of it as the uh, requirements for mobility are a little bit different than they are for for fixed users. You can uh, go into more detail about why that is. So, so basically one of the things, so the kinds of questions that we would ask ourselves would be where, where are the 
best markets for us to direct our, you know, our efforts, mobility versus fixed, because we're in both of those businesses, broadband, narrowband, uh, think, think about overland or oversea. And uh, one of the things, you know, one of the ways in which we're, we're going to evaluate each of those things would be, you know, are there potential acquisitions that we might do that would, that would enhance our positions and that allow us to, to get some resource or asset or capability that we felt the market really wanted. And then, then the question would be, can we do that more effectively by, uh, through an acquisition or, or from uh, an organic homegrown perspective? And then the other thing that we're gonna be looking at is kind of the quality of, of whatever it is, that aspect that we're trying to create, what's the quality that we can build or acquire, how long will that take us? And the main measure that we'll look at when we make that decision of whether an acquisition is good for us or not is, uh, is, is basically, is it accretive on a per share basis? That's, that's kind of our test. And you, you know, partly the reason we use that test is it aligns with our view of strategic planning. When we're looking at resource allocation within the company, where to put emphasis on competitive markets, one of the things we're looking at is whether or not those things will improve value that we're creating to the shareholders and, and best measure of that is on a per share basis. So that's so that was the process that we went through. Uh, and, and partly I talked about this mobility uh, aspect because almost every time that we've done an acquisition, it's in an area that we understand well. You know, we're, we're working with customers. We, we feel like we understand their needs and we're looking at all of the ingredients, you know, on an end-to-end basis from finding customers, being able to serve them, support them, deliver the service or the product they want. You know, the best way for us to evaluate a candidate acquisition is that we really have a good understanding of what those ingredients are that they bring. So I think that was kind of the very first part of it was, was that, the, that we could see, A, that there, there looked to be it looked to be an accretive acquisition. And then the other big thing was that uh, we felt like we understood those ingredients really well. Then the other thing that, that to us is always important is, is, is trying to evaluate kind of the upside and the downside. Okay, what can go wrong? What can go right? And normally what we'd like to see is a lot more sort of potential upside than potential downside, right? That the upside has some element of it that's really, really attractive. Might be a little bit too intangible or might involve more risk than we'd like to use when we do the, you know, the definitive per share, uh, creative dilutive uh, uh, calculation. But we'd like it to be something that we're really, really interested in, that we think is reasonably likely to obtain. It's just, a little bit harder to tell whether or not that that'll happen. Often because it involves uncertainty in the market. What what market? What markets will really value the aspects that we think will, will, can add value to us? And I'm always partial to deals where the acquirer is kind of a natural acquirer or the kind of the right buyer. So I'm interested in. And so 
what about your assets and strategy and, and makes you a good buyer for MISAT in the sense that you can um, you can take what they're doing and potentially accelerate and make them better um, as your partner? Yeah, so that I mean that that thing that that last thing that you said, which is when you look at an acquisition, one of the questions is, are you you know you clearly you're doing the acquisition because you think in some ways it makes your company better, but also what you'd really like to understand is, are you totally dependent on on the company you're acquiring, or do you have the ingredients that can help make their their service and products better? And so that was an important part of our uh, thought process here, and the, and the reason is that. We do similar things largely in complementary markets. That's, so we have a good understanding, we, we believe, of the challenges that Inmarsat has, of the things that their customers want. What, what, another thing is we built equipment that our customers use on Inmarsat satellites. So that gives us uh, perspective about uh, and, and confidence about do we understand what their satellites can do, how their services work, what the capabilities are? Uh, we also have bought in Marsat services in, in order to better serve our customers in some cases. So again, that gives us a good understanding of them. And then I think we have our own perspective on uh, what customers want, you know, what we think has worked uh, in our own businesses. And are, is that something that we think we can add to what Inmarsat provides to its customers and, and other businesses. So th those are the ways in which we'll think about that. And I think the part that was maybe most shocking to um, Cove Street as, as shareholders and maybe the market overall was the why now question. So you've spent years building the Viasat 3 satellites and over the next, call it 12 months or so, you're about to start generating revenue from those assets. So I guess, you know, our question was, why not wait until the balance sheet was in better shape because you had started to generate cash flow from the Biosat 3 assets, you know, rather, you know, relative to making the announcement kind of last uh, last winter. Okay. Yeah. So when you ask why now, I mean, there's, the obvious implication is it could have been sooner or it could have been later, right? I mean, you, you gave it some arguments for later. So the, the simplest answer for why now was that Inmarsat's owners had decided to initiate a process to sell the company. They felt that was what, that combining with another company was best for their shareholders. And I think it's an important thing to understand because most of the consideration that they're getting is in Viasat stock. So they, uh, and, and given the kind of the, I'd say the universe of companies that might acquire them, they probably anticipated that that was, that could be an outcome even with other acquirers. So, so the why now, the simplest part was that they were going to sell themselves. And then the question for us was, did, did it make sense? Now, the other things that entered into it from our perspective were that we had had concerns about Idmarsat's uh, performance, largely around the point I raised before, which was the transition from L-band to KA-band. So... Uh, before before they had KA band, you know, they and they think they still do. They have an L band service they called Fleet Broadband, but that was really a service that delivered speeds in the kilobits and not in the megabits, which is kind of more what customers would expect from a broadband service. And that was a tricky transition because by acknowledging 
that they need to do to transition from L-band to K-band to, to truly provide broadband, it created a little bit of open season on Inmarsat's customer base, right? That, that those customers could decide, hey, if, I, if I need a new, completely new service, maybe I can get it sooner, or maybe there are others that might offer that service besides Inmarsat. So they went through a period of several years of, of a pretty fair amount of uncertainty, which going back to the way that we were going to evaluate an acquisition created uncertainty for us because we were looking for confidence that we would have a, an accretive transaction. And that uncertainty was, was a factor in it. So one of the things going back to the why now is that uh, over the last about 12 months or so, Inmarsat had really stabilized that, that business and it started to grow again. And that's one of the things that you know, we encourage investors to look at in our proxy statement is, that, is to get a sense from their financials that that business had stabilized and was growing again. And that was a, a significant contributor to our confidence in, in the uh, financial analysis that we did. The other thing that was really important for us was that you know, we had a thesis that we were trying to, to test in some of our mobility businesses. And one of those is that while mobility businesses, when you think about all the different modes, you have the emergency or safety consideration, you have the operational performance, and you have passengers or crew who want connectivity on those platforms. What, they were, what we felt they were leading towards was a, a demand for bandwidth that was not just over the oceans, but turned out to be concentrated in airports and ports and other areas that these uh, Trans, these platforms, whether they're ships or airplanes, tended to congregate. That you know that a large amount of intercontinental service or global service is over the oceans, but it generally originates or terminates at some population center. And one of our theses was that 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 was really important to to the purchasers of those services. And uh, that's, we're, we're finding that that's been validated in the market over the last year or two. It's a little bit, it's, it's, it's always difficult to tease out what are the current and most important value propositions, but that's one that we felt was working and that we really added to Inmarsat's capability. So that gave us also confidence that we could forecast what would happen after the combination well enough to do the to do the acquisition. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. 
All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. And so should a potential or an existing investor understand LBAN to be a universally declining revenue base and asset or are there other uses for L-band that you know that this combination can can use, exploit, can expand? Like, how, just trying to get a sense, especially since I think even amongst people who are familiar with satellites, L-band is not a particularly like well understood or well discussed uh, asset. Yeah, so that's a, so that's a really good question, and it, and it goes a little bit to the way that we evaluate. It really speaks to, to the way that we evaluate. So think of it, it originally, the L-band value proposition was attractive because it's a way to do kind of almost omnidirectional communication that you need in, in moving platforms with relatively simple antennas. Kind of like you can use cell phones with cell towers in any direction without a very, really complicated antenna. And that was good enough when the data rates weren't so high. So what's happened now is that as the data rates get really high, I'm just going to give you an example. If you have a if you have a connection that's going to give you a megabit per second, you might not think that paying extra for another one that gives you 10 kilobits a second is worthwhile. But there are a couple of of really valuable things about L-band, and they I would put them in the category of likely to prove valuable, but the proof isn't there yet. And then when you say because if you look at if you look at, for instance, at Inmarsat's results, what you really see is kind of stability to the L-band applications and growth to the K-band, okay? But what we think is around now, there, there could be growth in the future in L-band, and you're starting to see some of the original of the kind of early indications of that. One is one big advantage of L-band compared to these broadband frequencies, which generally would be KU or KA, is that at the L-band, is, is really insensitive to bad, especially rain, intense rain. So if you think of one of the big purposes of providing connectivity to the ocean is safety of flight or safety at sea, often you know, uh, dangerous situations are correlated to really bad weather. So while your broadband connection might work a very high fraction of the time, at that, at that instant when you need it the most, the L-band is, is always gonna work. So what part of what we think is happening is, is that you know, in Marsat and, and others can separate those two value propositions so that a customer might pay most of his uh, uh, service fees for the broadband connection, but is willing to pay some amount to always have that always on connection. And there are some operational benefits that you could use to that as well. So that's one in indication of an enduring value to, to L-band. There are a couple of others as well. One is you still have very low cost omnidirectional antennas. It actually makes for the potential to carry on or carry off a 
uh, a satellite terminal on a very small platform. So you might think of like single engine airplane where somebody could carry on a, a device and not have to have it installed. It could be portable, could be rented. That, that's that's a, a potential market as well. Same thing for very small sea uh, craft. And, and for you're also seeing now services that will track hikers or others in, in remote location. So that's an L-band thing. The other area that is uh, promising, but it's not quite there yet, that we, that we think is really, really interesting is generally the internet of things. So that is having operations always connected and then being able to use that information to optimize performance as an example. So what, and Inmarsat has, you know, they've got a start in those areas. So for instance, one of the things that I'd like to point out is if you remember that uh, Malaysia airline jet that disappeared and everyone was trying to trace it, pretty much all of the information that was available to track it came from engine monitoring that was done over in Marsat. So, and that engine monitoring, but partly it can look at the performance of the engine, but also it could avoid problems that, that we have seen in the past where a turbine blade becomes unstable and blows a hole in the side of an airplane, as an example. If you can constantly monitor it, you might be able to anticipate things like that and improve it. That'd be an example of an IoT application that really not very uh, very common yet, but could be pretty substantial in the future. And you mentioned that your your goal in terms of making an acquisition is to find an accretive deal. And, and what we really care about as investors is free cash flow per share outstanding. And so the company, as you mentioned, just released uh, the deal proxy that highlights, I would argue, some pretty impressive projections for the combined company. So just to, you know, to frame it for people, how would you expect this deal to impact the free cash flow per share that Viasat can earn over time, assuming the deal is, is approved? Yeah, so that's one of the things that we said we, we would highlight in the proxy, and, and there's good information in there. And the main way we did that is by looking at the, each of the company's projections uh, separately and then combining them. But we did some discounting to the, those combined ones to represent uh, what we felt were uncertainties uh, in, uh, in, between them and not understanding the markets as well, what the, as, as, you know, just so we could be a little bit conservative. Uh, and then also factoring in some synergies as well, which we, we can talk about later, and which again were described in, in the proxy statement. The you know there are a couple there are a few things financially about Inmarsat that are uh, different represent different ways of doing business uh, that uh, we think are interesting and contribute to strong EBITDA for the company, good EBITDA margins, and good cash flow, and those things are. Uh, that they tend to be less vertically integrated than Viasat is. So they have an ecosystem of subcontractors who provide parts of their systems, a lot of those things that we might make ourselves, and they use a network of distributors, which means that their cash costs to support and acquire customers is lower. So there are, so there are some things about that that reflect the way Inmarsat does business. Viasat's had very healthy cash flow itself. We expect it to be cash flow positive. So the combination of them we felt was very positive. And then we both have 
uh, an effect coming into play, which is that our businesses tend to be very high investment costs or fixed costs to put assets in space and then lower variable costs, which tend to generate cash once you bring those assets into service. And we've both been on uh, a near, kind of near the beginning of deploying assets that we've had under construction for quite a while. So you combine all those factors together, created a very attractive cash flow per, uh, uh, opportunity, and it was especially attractive on a per share basis, which again, going back to the, the main way that we evaluated it, uh, that was very attractive. And it also, again, is indicative that we don't have to be perfect prognosticators or perfectly or perfect executors in order to get benefits for our shareholders. And I think, you know, one of the things that we immediately saw people writing about and talking about after the deal was released, the announcement was released, was that people, I think, were surprised that Viasat um, would buy MRSAT based on some perception that MRSAT had inferior technology, especially, obviously, in space. So, I mean, can you talk about if there are any areas where that perception is accurate, um, you know, in, in terms of where uh, MRSAT has some technology debt? and maybe where that's not a fair depiction of their asset base. Yeah, so uh, the thing that, that Viasat's really focused on, and, and I think it's very important as well, and again, it comes to the complementary nature of the company. So let's, let's start from sort of thinking that, that way. So the thing that we've really focused on is uh, cost-effective production of bandwidth, okay? And then the other, they think of it, when we try to boil down our our business strategy, it's that there's a very, almost very large, almost infinite demand for bandwidth because that demand for bandwidth is growing so much each year. Right? That you'll see, it says whatever it was this year, on a per capita basis, it's 30% higher next year, the year after us, compounding. So that means to us that being able to get very, very high bandwidth throughput for the assets that you put in space. You know, bandwidth, think of productivity as throughput to, to places where there's high demand per capital dollar invested. That was really the thing that we were very focused on. And remember, uh, for, for those of us that have followed the company, that was primarily overland. In, in, because one of the things we were aiming for was to be able to apply that bandwidth to both fixed applications and mobile applications. And that, you know, having that diversity in the portfolio was good for us, especially at a time when we're just trying to grow the mobility business. We're relatively new entrants in that. So in and in Marsat, uh, sort of satellite investments were much more global in nature. They didn't have any fixed uh, applications and because of the way their customers tended to use their bandwidth, they were let, their customer base was less sensitive to this issue about high geographic concentration of demand. Okay, and and it turns out that when you when you build satellites or design satellites, the geographic dispersion of that demand is the factor in it. So what one of the things were, were for us we were really focused on that geographic concentration and, and they were not. So that's the, that is the, the area where, where I think 
people people thought our technology was better, and partly because it was aimed at a slightly different problem. Now, one of the other things that we 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 are able to do with uh, with Viasat three, which none of our other satellites really to do, is be able to combine both that high capacity uh, in high demand areas capability with global coverage and flexible global coverage. So we think that that is, you know, that's really powerful. That was kind of, the, that would be the way in which uh, we would have gone to market had this uh, uh, transaction not looked uh, economically attractive to us, okay. Um, and I think it's also the way in which we can augment that has in a way that's really, really good for customers. And a lot of this really depends on your perception of what's going to be valuable to customers. So, you know, ours is that bandwidth is really, really important. And we're very focused on the amount of bandwidth we can deliver, partly because we think that there's a lot of demand for video. Uh, we'll more and more be oriented towards streaming, as an example, as it is on land. And so that having large amounts of bandwidth is, is an important aspect of that, as an example. So that, that's an example of a way that we can augment what Inmarsat has. But the main thing I would say as well, though, is that you know, that Inmarsat brings a number of things to us besides just their specific satellites. They bring distribution, they bring this ecosystem, which can be valuable to us. They bring a very large customer base. So one of the things when you think about the economics of satellites really is you would put the economic cost of their satellites in the context of what their revenue base is or their productivity, right? So if you think of the utility of their assets in, in the context of the revenue base that comes with them, that's what made them attractive to us. The other thing that's really important is that our satellite technologies being largely complementary mean that if we manage them well, we can get some really good synergies. And that, and by synergies, what you'd, what you'd like to see is that the total utility of that, generally we'd measure in terms of bandwidth, throughput, productivity in the areas of high demand will be higher for the two put together than they would be for either one alone. So that's an example of us, we believe, creating a, a benefit that speaks well to our customers that comes from the combination that you couldn't have done with either company. And I think there was also um, a perception that Immersat was a declining company. You mentioned that they were kind of um, transitioning from L band to K band, um, and that was uh, hurting some of their maritime business. So I guess I'm, I'm interested, you know, if I, if I go through the proxy, I can see some um, double-digit revenue growth projections for, for the MRSAT standalone business. So I'm interested if you could highlight, you know, where they've been growing um, and then maybe like what, what are the categories of, of, of areas where you think that they can continue to grow over time? Yeah, so in general, they've been growing at KA Band, which is a relatively new business for them. And, uh, and one of the reasons is, and this is one of the things that's attracted to us, it's a very, it's a rapidly growing market. So the, if you think about kind of the, the whole notion that airlines and ships want to be connected because of their passengers or their crew and not for the 
basic functionality of the platform, right? It's not just from a pilot perspective or an operational perspective, but it takes into account the, what the, you know, what the passengers want on passenger ships. That can be cruise ships, yachts, it can be uh, commercial airplanes. And then even on merchant ships where you've got crew that have nothing else to do and connectivity is valuable to them. I mean, these are all relatively new, uh, these are relatively new markets. They're rapidly growing. And so Inmarsets uh, has been uh, you know, a good competitor in a very fragmented field. So there's lots and lots of participants in those, I think that uh, we counted over 50 participants in in uh, mobile satellite connectivity coming at it from every angle. Inmarsat uh, has been growing in that. I think that the, a lot of the perception of decline was really for a couple of things. One was this transition to L-band to KA-band that I mentioned, uh, which we think has a good outcome, which is that there's different value propositions for the two, that K isn't just a better version of LBAN. Then the other one is uh, several years ago, Inmarsat started leasing some of its spectrum in the US to Legato for pretty substantial amounts of money. And the, that it's not totally tailed off. There's been sort of episodic or lumpy and uh, hadn't been as pronounced over the last few years. And, and actually, we didn't bake into, into our projections at all. That's one of the things that we described in the proxy as well. But some of those large uh, payments to Legato over the years might have painted a different picture of their fundamental operating business as opposed to that spectrum leasing business. I think those are two factors that might have contributed to some sense of of decline. The other, and then the other one is that, you know, Inmarsat is on and is kind of nearing the end of probably the largest space asset investment that they've done in their history. Right? They have a large number of satellites coming in. That also has a, had something of an impact. And as those satellites start to be deployed with the first of them already launched in December, I think that's also going to help their performance. And some of that same, some of that same, uh, issue about investment applies to Biosat, although we've continued to grow rapidly through it. As we've discussed, I mean, the the, the combination looked a lot more attractive, uh, especially on a, on a free cash flow basis, which is we felt one of the most important metrics that, that we've been aiming for all this time. So one is it, it was attractive. The other, there are a couple of other things as well that uh, that came along with that. One is that we're in very complementary markets and businesses. So right now, you know, Viasat is uh, on, on a satellite services basis is uh, largely fixed. So right over about uh, you know I think uh, you know somewhere in the range of 75 percent fixed. Uh, and that the one of the big issues, and, and again in the fixed business, it's largely in the U.S., we're growing internationally. But one of, the, one of the artifacts of the fixed business is that while we've competed well, it's very difficult to compete with billions or tens of billions of government subsidies. So in the U.S. market and some other global markets, that's one of the, the realities we face. So we felt that there was value in diversifying our base more heavily towards mobility. One of the things that's good about the mobility market is it's kind of a natural satellite market. So governments, it's, it's harder for governments to 
have a big impact on that through subsidies. So we think that it's just more naturally competitive. We, we like to compete. Uh, and then um, the other one is that we felt that, that we could benefit by these complementary businesses because we could gain efficiencies. So as an example, you, you know, one of the things that I think our investors have seen uh, as an artifact of the mobility business is that we've been very successful in it, but it takes a pretty long time to grow because the sales cycles are long. It's taken customers a while to understand the differences between different value propositions. And some of our, you know, some of our biggest customers have tried other services with other technologies or other value propositions. And it took them years to decide that, that maybe ours was better or, or actually ours was better because they invested a lot in it based on their perception of what was important at that time. The other thing uh, about the mobility business that we've seen is, for instance, the commercial in-flight one has been very, very negatively affected by the COVID crisis, whereas the fixed businesses are not. But you can have periods of time when the fixed businesses are more more affected, or when maritime businesses might be more affected than, than in-flight, or commercial more than government. So what, one of the things that we think is really good about the Inmarsat merger, and it, again, in addition to just the purely f f accretive financial analysis, is that it gives us a lot more robustness to unforeseen sort of geopolitical events than we would have with a single you know, targeted business. And I, I think that's also, one of the things that Inmarsat saw on its side is, you know, they're very, very heavily exposed to certain mobility businesses, but not to other businesses that were also fast growing. And as you're laying the groundwork and, and, and building a business for APAC and EMEA satellites, you know, our sense was that Viasat was going to have to build distribution and relationships and, you know, country by country basis. It's, 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 it's a lot of work. So I'm interested in how the, a partnership with MRSAT, um, whether it's their sales network or their distribution or their ground infrastructure, how does that help you move the in-flight Wi-Fi business forward at, at Viasat? Yeah, there's, so Inmarsat has, uh, again, has resources and markets that we don't. I, I'm just going to give you one example is that they have their L-band business, which is actually a, a really good complement to a K-band broadband service because of some of the things that I described, some of the features that, that it has relative to the K-band. So uh, they have... Uh, relationships with many, many more airlines than we do as a result of that. And that includes things like operational support, uh, customer interactions that are, you know, a good, it's a good way to, to introduce our broadband services to those customers. Also, I think one of the things that is really important to keep in mind is that the, these mobility businesses are really, uh, in the early stages of growth that, well, and well, let me, let me put it a little more precisely is that different mobilities businesses are in different stages of growth with some of the more attractive ones being in the early stages. And so the value propositions aren't totally clear either to us as providers or to the end customers. So you have, you know, you have different, uh, whole, there, I mean, there's, like I said, probably 50 competitors 
in these mobility markets now. And you have new entrants coming, for instance, Leo Systems. Leo Systems are going to argue that latency is a really, really important value criteria for those customers. Other, you know, there are other uh, potential value propositions having to do with in-flight entertainment, uh, with operational support, with weather, with geographic concentration. So it's not totally clear how all those value propositions will play out. And we feel that the acquisition of Inmarsat and its ecosystem, and the ecos remembering the ecosystem can consists of both suppliers and distributors on you know, both sides of them. We, we think that that gives us a lot more opportunity to find the, the right mix of value that customers will want in the future. That, that, that includes both on the distribution side and the supply side. And I know you are a very analytical guy and you, you always like to look at the math with any investment. Right. And so given that, how did you think about the price you were willing to pay for MRSAT, you know, relative to a price that was too rich and, and forced you to walk away? You know, like getting just digging in a little more is like there's a fair amount of equity used. And, and, and of course, the push and the pull is how much equity does each side get? And that's essentially the price you're paying. So I'm just trying to get a sense of like how your internal discussions were of that, you know, right price to pay. Obviously, you think it's accretive even, even at the current levels, but you could have always paid 20% less, right? Like that's as a shareholder, you always want people to pay less. So just want to hear you, you know, uh, riff on all, all that a little bit. Yeah, so it, it takes two to make a transaction. So it's got to make sense for, for each of us, uh, both in, and that includes financially and strategically as well. And uh, I think from our perspective, you know, like you say, we're, we're very quantitative. <laughs> like we, know, we like to understand how things will play out, how, because we have tons of decisions to make, you know, setting aside acquisitions, what types, should we be in the satellite services business at all? If we are in what geographic and vertical market? So we, we do a lot of analysis to make those decisions. They've worked out pretty well for us. If you look at, you know, one of the things that, that we like to point out to investors is if you look at our return on assets employed, it's, it's really, really good. The, the big issue has just been that we've, been trying to grow those assets employed because the returns are good and just balance those two things. Well, we use the same methods and skills and approach when we evaluate acquisitions. The, so the, the big issue for us are, are some of the things that we've already talked about. On, on our side, it was on a per share basis, the, the sort of the very first test is are, are we better off or worse off uh, with it? And, and it really took us getting comfortable with this L-band to KA-band uh, conversion. And one of the things for us was we, we did think that there was an outcome that was going to be positive, but you, you like confirmation of that in the market and marketplaces can be complicated. You know, right? So, so the, it, and it was a challenging time for Inmarsat. So one of the things going back to the thing we said before was, well, we really wanted some evidence, some financial evidence that, that the value proposition that we felt would remain with L-band was there and that there was going to be some stability to it. And we also felt 
that just watching Inmarsat, that they that's what they were trying to achieve, that, that, that they that they saw the same thing we did. And so one of the questions for us was, could they achieve it? Right. And that's it's been fairly recent in the last year or so that financially it's become evident. So that was a so that was a big factor for us. Now the other the on the other side, you know, it, so we don't we, we want to pay a market price, right? Just because it could be valuable to us, we don't want to overpay, we want to pay a market price for it. So you know, one of the things you you again you'll see in the uh, um, in the proxy is that uh, PJT did a very thorough uh, analysis for us, a fairness opinion that looked at the valuation that we were paying just to see that it was reasonable. And then the other part that contributed to us believing it was reasonable was that Inmarsat was running a process and they had competing bids. Uh, and although uh, they did a good job of, of segregating the bids, you know, that we, we really didn't know who it was for sure, nor did we know what the term was price and terms. And some of the terms were unique to us. Uh, we, we felt like, uh, you know, that, that we made an offer that was uh, pretty, you know, that was, that was probably competitive, right? That was, I don't think it was excessive. And again, if you look in the proxy, you'll see there's a lot of detail on the process that we went through and all the steps and the back and forth involved in the negotiation to reach the price that we did. And that, that gave us confidence that we weren't overpaying, right? I mean, the point being that, that you don't want to overpay even if, if it's accretive, <laughs> you want to you want to find the Goldilocks number. What's the good? What's the what's the number right in the middle that's good for the buyer and good for the seller? I, I think that's what happened. And I would argue that any deal could look amazing on paper, but then it has to be done. It has to be completed, and then the people have to figure out how to work together. So maybe let's talk a little bit about culture. So you know, how would you expect a bunch of engineers located in San Diego, where you are? to work with their new colleagues in the UK, especially given that the former Amarsat CEO called Viasat 3 a myth mythical beast. So there was some there was some competition between these companies. I'm trying to kind of interested, like how do you think about integrating their people culturally so that they feel part of a, you know, a growing team and a growing enterprise? Yeah, so there's, so there's two parts of it. I think, uh, or multiple parts of it at least. I mean, one part is, uh, is understanding the perspective and the context that each com company worked in, okay? And so that having an understanding and some empathy of why companies make the decisions that they do helps a lot so that you don't end up with uh, uh, one side you know, being more arrogant or they, hey, they made dumb decisions, we made smart decisions. A lot of that really depends on context. And so, you know, now, if I went back to the history, remember, Inmarsat started as a governmental organization, and it was a monopoly that was intended to serve a segment of the market that couldn't be served any other way. And then probably about 15 or so years ago, they really needed to become competitive. So if you look at what they did, you know, I think that they, I think they did reasonable things given the context that they were in. Uh, and also remember they were, uh, 
I mean, there are really no company, there are almost no companies in the satellite space that are as vertically integrated as we are and that have come up in the history in which we have, which is we started providing modules and we just kept expanding as we found that the marketplace that we could choose from or that could use our stuff didn't, we think didn't really have the same sense of what was good for customers as we did. So we, we have a pretty unique perspective uh, that I, th I think has served us well in the marketplace, but we don't expect to see every company, you know, have that perspective. They, they, they'll have a perspective from their own history. Uh, the, the other thing is that, you know, we've, we've used Inmarsat uh, services. We've provided technology to customers that use Inmarsat services and they work. They're very reliable. I think so we have, you know, we have respect for that. I do think that, one of the things in Marsat was wrestling with was how to develop a culture that is more competitive, right? more customer centric, less utility oriented. And again, that was one of the things that they, they dealt with themselves when they brought Rajiv Suri on as their CEO about a year ago. And uh, that was, you know, that was a little bit unexpected on, on our part. Uh, but I think it was a good move on their part because he came out of a very, very competitive industry, which was the telecom infrastructure in uh, industry, ended up uh, running Nokia. You know, they, they built Nokia into a full service, full portfolio telecom company uh, through the acquisitions and mergers that they, they made. And uh, I think that Rajiv has made changes within Inmarsat that make the company more receptive to the type of uh, kind of aggressive technology oriented culture that Viaset has. The other thing is that I think is going to be really important in aligning the cultures is that, uh, you know, it, if, the, if the decisions that Viaset made have been right in terms of anticipating what the needs are of our customers, with one of those being as an example, being able to support really dense demand, dense geographic demand around airports and hubs, then you know th those would be points of stress for other services that aren't as good at that. We've already seen that play out in the US market with other competitors besides in Marsat. And so one of the things is going back to one of the observations you made is Viasat can help in Marsat people serve their customers better. That creates a really good dynamic between well, on integrating them, it's 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 not like a you know a, we're the conquering company and we're going to take over. It's like hey, you guys bring something that our customer you know that the Inmarsat customers can really benefit from, and that'll make their jobs easier. Whether it's in maritime or business jets or government or commercial commercial air and all the different mobility businesses they're in, if we can bring technology to apply to K and then L band, I think they're going to be appreciative, and it's going to make their ecosystem work better. So we're optimistic about that. And, and speaking of a customer base that we haven't really talked about yet, and, you know, de defense and government, we haven't focused on quite yet. And you know, I think we've been very public uh, at Co Street about our sense that people don't give ISAT enough credit for the quality of the defense business. So how does this deal enhance the company's joint efforts in defense and government? Okay, so uh, 
it, it's interesting because Vinasat has had a very strong presence in narrowband government communications. And by narrowband, for the government, it's UHF, where they own all the spectrum. They own, they or other governments own pretty much all the satellites. And what an equipment company does is it, it basically sells equipment to government users that often meets their standards or designs or is, or is constrained by the space segment that they use. But the US government and many governments around the world are also users of Inmarsat and other L-band narrowband systems. And it's not, it's not just Inmarsat, but L-band has been an important ingredient for narrowband. Uh, one really good example of what I'm describing is what's called blue force tracking where Visat has been a big provider of technology, but the Blue Force tracking terminals operate on third-party L-band satellites, not exclusively in Marsat, but including in Marsat. So when you think about the, the what we've done at KA-band, where the government has its own satellites uh, and we make equipment that works on their satellites and in their services, but we also have built our own satellites and networking systems that are much more capable than government ones. And that's been the foundation of a pretty substantial part of our government business. We now have the opportunity to do the same thing in narrowband that we, that we could in broadband because there are, there's tons of improvement for uh, narrowband. US government has spent several billion dollars on a generation of UHF satellites called MUOS, Mobile User Objective System, but it doesn't really even scratch the surface of the demand for narrowband. So clearly there's an appetite for billions of dollars of, uh, of, of functionality in there that where we think we can be a lot more productive, similar as what we've found success in in, in the broadband world. Uh, so Inmarsat's mix of government business is this mix of L-band and K-band, and it's largely services-oriented. We also think there's opportunities that by integrating the space component or the service component with the ground technology component to improve the experience for customers and the value that we deliver to customers. And uh, I think that, you know, for us, for Viasat, our government business has been focused on the U.S. government and allies that are interoperable with the U.S. government. Like Inmarsat's market, again, is kind of complementary to ours and broader than that. They serve quite a few other governments, some of which is a little bit enabled by the fact that they're not a U.S. company. So uh, that those we think those create really good opportunities for us to grow the services part of our government business, which right now has been about it's about 25% of our government business. I think within Marsat, we'll increase that pretty substantially to close to half. So recurring subscription revenue, which is a, will give a little more stability to uh, or predictability to our government business. I think one of the things that investors who have been with us for a long time have noticed that there's kind of lumpiness to our government business because we tend to win large awards. The timing is a little bit uh, unpredictable. The services business is more predictable. So that's that's a good factor as well for our business, increasing that services segment and increasing the playing field where we can optimize both space and ground product and services.
In, in our last discussion, you mentioned the merits of having a hybrid network that includes LEO, GEO, and even MEO satellites. So it, I'm interested, is this deal the start of like a how to create a LEO, MEO, GEO mesh? And, and how does EMRSAT's so-called orchestra play into all of this? I think as you know, someone who's not quite as you know, technologically savvy and all this, I don't understand how you know, their KA and their L band and your KA all mesh together to provide a, you know, uh, a, a seamless solution. So how does all that, you know, in, in layman's term, how, how does this deal set you up to be able to provide that hybrid network? Yes, uh, so, so the purpose of a hybrid network, the, the, the thinking of a hybrid network is that you named off a number of different things, like there's geosatellites and meosatellites and leosatellites. And those satellites are different because of their orbits. Okay, so, and, and generally the geo is very, very, oh, 22,500 miles up. Leo, a meo might be five or six or 8,000 miles up. Leo might be hundreds of miles up, okay? From, these are from the ground. And so the differences are that the round trip delay to the satellite is different and the field of view that you get is different. So for instance, a low earth orbit satellite, because it's closer to the ground, you're, you're gonna have lower latency, faster responsiveness to go from the ground to the satellite and back down again. So that's just physics. It's not possible to do the same thing at geo. But on the other hand, a geosynchronous satellite, uh, because it's so high up, has a field of view that's much, much greater than the low earth orbit satellite. So there's a potential to maybe be more efficient in, in how you apply bandwidth. And then MEO is kind of in the middle. It's not, it doesn't, it's not as good at either of those dimensions as either of the others, but it's a compromise, okay? So, so that's one thing. Then there's another one, which is frequency bands. So we talked about KA band or KU band or L band. And at each of those different altitudes, the different spectrum have different, you know, can be applied in different ways. Okay, so one of the no so the notion of hybrid is just let's build a service that uses resources both in spectrum and in altitude that somehow combine them to create the best of all worlds. Right. So what you'd really like would be can I get the the field of view and the efficiency of geo with the latency of Leo. That'd be an example, right? That'd be, and then what you might say is, "Hey, I want the, I want the speed that I can get from KA band and bandwidth, and I want the weather resiliency that I can get from L band." So that would be, and it, uh, th those would be examples of ways to combine different resources to create a whole that no one of them can do as well on its own. And if you look at what's happening in five G, that's basically what's happening in 5G, where you, you, people talk about low band, mid band, and high band, or millimeter wave band. So the low band, one of the big advantages is it propagates for very long distance. So you can be far away from the tower and still get connectivity. The frequencies pass through walls. So you can get, you can get service indoors, but there's not very much bandwidth there. So you can't get very, very high speeds and not very many people can share it. If, when you use the mid band, when you use the high band, it doesn't propagate well, doesn't go through walls, but the speeds are really high. And then mid band is again, it has some of the pluses and minuses of each. So what, what people have done and are doing in the 5G world is they're building phones that have 
antennas and modems that can work on all those bands and then kind of dynamically based on whether you're indoors, outdoors, near a tower, far away, the network will, will use the resource that's best. So that's the, that is the, you know, that's the ideal, the, what the goal is for a hybrid network and satellite is that you look at what the situation is and you may use more than one altitude at the same time, more than one frequency band at the same time. And then the other dimension that's become really, really interesting is to also augment that with terrestrial solutions as well. So if you're, for instance, over land, it may be that if you're really valuing low latency, that instead of using a LEO satellite, you can use an air to ground terminal for the, the bandwidth that's low latency. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you, you as a user may be doing multiple things at once. So I'm just going to give you an example. Uh, if you, uh, let's say you're, you're on an airplane just and you're, and you're using, um, you're using their Wi-Fi, you might be watching a streaming video or watching, let's say watching a, a sports event that's streamed. You sort of have that on in the background on your screen while you're working on a PowerPoint presentation, okay? And you also might be involved in some, some there's very little things that people do on airplane that really demand low latency, but maybe you're doing one of those. So the idea would be, okay, let's use KA band for your streaming video. Let's use the L band maybe for a chat session because you're in bad weather and the streaming video is a little bit uh, less reliable. Right? So you even even on a Wi-Fi connection to an individual person, you can be combining these different resources at the same time for different purposes. So that's what the goal is. So when you think about what that what Inmarsat does for us. The number one thing is it gives us a very, very strong position in L-band spectrum. Again, that's one of the things that we talk about in the proxy, because if you don't have access to spectrum, you, you can't be a player in those orbits. Okay, so that, that's really good. Then they also bring L-band assets and satellites. The other thing is, you know, what you'd really want to be able to do is you'd want to have your mobility customers be connected to both networks at once. So, you know, for us, we, we have been dual band. We've done KA band and KU band, but those are very, very similar. I mean, the, in, in propagation characteristics, weather resilience, Inmarsat as a, as a service provider is really the only one right now that provides both L band and KA band services. So from that perspective, they help us on hybrid. The other thing you have to think about with hybrid is what we're really talking about is being connected to more than one mode of transmission at a time, right? Either by altitude or by frequency band or by type of connection. So even if you're doing that with say two different geo satellites at two different bands, or sometimes even at the same band, you're implementing some of the key aspects of a hybrid network. That is your ability to choose which network to draw from in order to satisfy some particular aspect of what a customer wants. So that, that turns out to be one of the complicated things of hybrid networks 
is just making those determinations, looking at the traffic and saying, oh, I think I should add a, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a whole lot more of this. Part of what makes hybrid work is just being able to automatically detect which aspects of your multi-mode network are most relevant to the customer at, at any point in time. Okay, so I'll, again, I'll give you an example. We've done this with Inmarsat and with other, with other satellite operators as well, where we'll build a network where you might choose, I'll use this part of the network at this time or that part of the network at that time, or then what you advance to is, hey, I'll use some of each at the same time and change the mix. And then you might think of adaptively routing specific services or applications onboard a platform to the right network for the right purpose. So that it's, it's complicated, but we've been pretty successful at making progress on doing that for both fixed and mobile applications. So, the, so I think Inmarsat brings ingredients. It doesn't bring the entire package. We still expect to work with other operators who have, you know, for, for instance, uh, we work with operators of MEO satellites. We, we expect to continue to do that. We expect we, we may work with LEO operators as well. And it, in places where the market doesn't exist or doesn't provide what we need, we may invest in it and do it ourselves. And when you were thinking about this deal and analyzing it and, and considering what could make it turn out to be a bad investment, what kind of things were you weighing? I mean, we like to lay out the risk factors and the downsides for any any investment we make. Like, what what kind of what, what were the variables or or the, the you know, what we call the short points that that came up in your mind regarding this deal? Yeah, well, I, I think the risk factors that we laid out in the proxy are you know pretty comprehensive on that. But I mean, if you're if you're going to simplify it, I mean, some of them are you know sudden changes in demand, right? That that that. Look, for instance, that was introduced because of the COVID environment. Or there can also be, remember, 9-11 had a huge impact on in-flight connectivity, uh, not only domestically, but turned out had an impact uh, globally as well. There could be, there can be, you know, wars or hostile activities that can impact markets. So number one, one of the things, you know, we're, we're trying to be, robust to are changes in the demand environment that are totally outside of us. And that's one of the things, you know, in one sense, I think that the combination because of the breadth of the portfolio is more robust, but because we have greater exposure, in some sense, we're probably more likely to encounter some negativity than none. Uh, another factor could be it could just be currency exchange issues, right? Or, or, or other economic dislocations in some parts of, of the market. Again, somewhat on the demand side. Uh, there's always potential problems on the supply side in the space business. And so, you know, we, we try to ensure against those, but there's risks to launch. There's risks of uh, new technologies in space. There's risks of schedule delays that could impact um, cash flow, as an example, but I, I think those were a lot of the the main risks that that we are most most focused on. It's it's really 
changes in the demand environment. The other big factor is changes in the competitive environment or changes in what customers value. So if it turns out that uh, low latency is a really, really important ingredient for customer satisfaction in some mobility markets, we're not enhancing that. You know, we're, we're betting on other, that other things will be more important in the, uh, in, in the market. And that's what competition is all about. Right? So it's not just co every company doing exactly the same thing in the same way. The way you really get enhancements in products and services are different companies doing things in different ways. And so that's what we're doing here is we're, we're, we're making what we think are some prudent bets. And I know you've talked to a number of existing investors about the deal. I'm sure plenty of potential shareholders have reached out um, as well. Um, so to close this conversation, I'm interested in what you think is the most common misperception or misunderstanding about the merit of combining Viasat and MRSAT. Well, I'm going to go back to the thing that you said, which is that we tend to be very analytical, right? That that. And, and when, you want to be, when you want to be really analytical, you have to take a holistic look at all the factors in a transaction. And you need, a, you, know, you need some mathematical framework, some quantitative framework that lets you combine all those factors in a way that, that lets you make sense of the deal. And, and so what I think is that one of the main things that we've been talking to investors about is how we did that holistic view and how to not get totally distracted by one particular component of the deal, right? So that, that you know, for instance, the kinds of things we might hear is, is well, isn't Viasat 3 better? And so that, that's decisive. And well, but you have to put it in the context of, what revenue comes with those assets? How might we use the assets in ways that are more, more productive, that generate synergies, right? For that that uh, allow us to do things that neither of us could do together. And so I think that what we think that studying the proxy is a really good way for people to get uh, kind of a, an understanding of the more complete context for the transaction. And, you know, off, I guess I would say in some sense, a lot of, I mean, these are, you know, these are very, very complicated uh, businesses. And there are times when distilling things down into simpler sound bites can help people understand. But then when things change, if you cling to those same sound bites without looking more comprehensively, I think you can get a distorted perception of the transaction. And so I, I think that a lot of the investors that we talked to really were looking at some factors, uh, very, you know, weighting some factors very heavily and not looking at the holistic, uh, the holistic version of the transaction, which is very complicated, but which we tried to lay out more completely in the proxy. And so what we're hoping is that, uh, you know, now that it's been published, that we'll be able to interact with investors using that proxy as a framework to, to help flesh out all, the whole thing out and so that they can see kind of the, the, 
you know, the thought, the thought behind it and why we think it's going to be really good for shareholders. Does that, does that answer your question there? Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. I mean, uh, we hope that, that this podcast as well, you know, gives people a supplement to the proxy. And, you know, we, we talked about it, a number of different aspects, whether it's defense, whether it's uh, implied Wi-Fi, whether it's, you know, kind of the mesh solution. So I think, I think this will give people a better sense of, of what you're thinking. So uh, what, whatever happens, it's going to be a really interesting next, you know, kind of like year for you guys. So uh, good luck with that. And, and thanks again for being on, on Compounders. Sure. Thanks for having us, Ben. And, and yeah, I think that this, the, the questions that we've addressed here should be the ones that pretty much every knowledgeable investor should be asking. So I really appreciate you. Great. Doing thanks, this. Mark. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at cobestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.